name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at our church, and today is a little bit of a unique Sunday for us. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, then you didn't know that Jeremy, our lead pastor, announced that he is preaching today in view of a call down at Paramount Baptist Church in Amarillo. So uh, we are sad, um, but we are also hopeful. And I know that now you guys have all had a week to process it, and I'm sure there's there's questions, and I believe that our passage today is going to possibly help shed some light on those. But whatever I don't answer today, please feel free to catch Will or myself or even one of the deacons, and we'll do our best to answer whatever questions you might have. So uh, just that is kind of an introduction um, by way of announcement, uh, assuming that all goes well for Jeremy, who is, I believe, filling the pulpit right this second down in Amarillo. They'll vote for him after he preaches. Uh, assuming they all vote yes, Jeremy will then become the pastor at that church. And so he'll come back, he'll spend the next three weeks here with us, and on the 26th of March, we're going to have a sending lunch, a, a celebration lunch for them, and uh, praise God, this facility is not big enough. So we're going to meet at the Rock that Sunday, uh, there's still details to come on it, but you guys can just plan on the 26th of March, that to be the McMorris' last Sunday here, uh, and, and we'll eat, we'll celebrate, we'll have fun, and we'll, we'll party and enjoy it, and probably cry a little bit. Uh, he will, he will definitely cry a little bit. So uh, take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the book of Ephesians. That's right, good news, we are taking a break from 1 Corinthians, and if you've read ahead in 1 Corinthians, you know why I wanted to take a break, because the next passage is about the baptism of the dead and the resurrection and whatever that means, and so uh, it worked out that 1 Corinthians, we can finish it over the next three weeks, so Jeremy's last Sunday will be the last Sunday of 1 Corinthians, and we'll be done with that book, which has been good. Uh, but hard. So uh, today we get a break and uh, I had the freedom to choose what I wanted to preach from and I felt like the Lord was leading me to Ephesians chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So if you'll flip to Ephesians chapter 4 and before I read these first 16 verses, I kind of want to just give a little bit of a running start to catch us up on what's going on in this book. Remember this book is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus and he wrote this while he was in prison um, and he wrote, this book can be divided into two halves. Chapters one through three are just full of theology. It tells us about who God is, what God has done, and how everything has changed because of him. And then chapters four through six are all application. Paul takes that theology that he's unpacked in the first three chapters, and he applies it to specific life situations in the last three chapters. Okay, So with that in mind, we're going to read... Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and, and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, this morning... As we dive into this text and cover a lot of things, uh, Lord, I pray that you would grant us understanding of your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would grant me clarity in communicating what you intended us to hear. Lord, I pray that you would give us the capacity to stay focused and to stay tuned in. And Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would grant us repentance. Change us into the image of your son, into Jesus. That is our goal, that is our aim, is to look more like him and to become like him. Thank you for your word that does that. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, he's, he's unpacked all this theology in the first three chapters, and then we go into chapter four, and chapter four, verse one, serves as a thesis statement for the rest of the book. If you don't understand chapter four, verse one, then you can't understand the rest of the book. So we need to understand four one, and in four one, what we see Paul commanding the church at Ephesus, and then the rest of these verses, he's saying to them, church, A worthily walking church grows. A worthily walking church grows. Now, that is going to be our main point for today. The thing that we need to walk away with this in this passage is, is if we walk worthily, we will grow. Now, in understanding that and unpacking that, there's four observations from this text that I I want to make. And the first one, it comes from the first three verses. And this is our our high calling. So in verse 1, Paul says, I, a prisoner, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, that verse alone brings up two questions. What is a worthy walk, and what does it mean to be called? Well, that's where it would be really helpful if we had read all of Ephesians before this, but we don't have time, because Paul, in the previous three chapters, he has unpacked what a calling is. So if you just take your Bible with me real quickly, flip back a page to Ephesians chapter one, uh, and you'll see there's, there's a couple words that he uses. And we're going to kind of jump back and forth through Ephesians real quickly, but I think it's helpful if you have it in front of your eyes. So in Ephesians 1, verse 18, Paul says, uh, kind of picking up in the second half of that verse, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. All right, so there's that word called again. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? So we see this idea of, of calling, and it's tied to the word hope, Well, what is our hope and what is our calling and how does that fit? Well, let's backtrack even a little bit further to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, this is where it really counts. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So we have these words calling, called. We have these words chosen. We have holy, blameless, adopted. What what is Paul getting at in Ephesians 4 verse 1? Well, simply put, to be called means to be saved. We started a, a Life at Liberty class last Sunday, and, and in our very first one, we always spend the first Sunday just unpacking what is the gospel. It's four words we use are God, sin, Christ, response, and that's what saves you. It's to understand that you were created to live in unity with God. 
right? So in, in Ephesians uh, four verse, or Ephesians one verse ten, God has set, sent Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. There's this idea of unity that carries all the way through the book of Ephesians. You were created to live in unity with God, but we've got a problem. God is holy, and we're not. And God's holiness and our unholiness puts us separated from him. And not only does it separate us, but it actually makes us enemies with God. And because we're his enemies, because we're unholy, what we've done is, like what we just read in Genesis in the garden, is we rebelled against God's word. God gave us his word that tells us how to live in his world according to his ways, and we didn't do that. We don't do that. So because of that, what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is that we're dead. We're as good as dead. We're enemies of God. What we deserve, as he says elsewhere, is that we're children of wrath. We deserve to die. But the good news is, is Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses. God in his kindness made a way for us to be united back to him. And it's through the redemption of the blood of the lamb. Jesus came and lived the life that we were supposed to live. He walked in pureness and holiness. He was blameless. He was the son of God. But then he died. He died for you and he died for me. He took on the wrath of God that was meant for us. So the call then, the call then to, to us, to you in this room is this. The call is, is do you believe that? Has God been kind enough to help you see your sin that puts you at enmity with him? And if he has, then what he is calling you today is to acknowledge your sin, to repent of it, and to put your faith in Jesus, the only one who can save you. So what does it mean to be called? To be called means to be saved. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead. But Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive. How did he make us alive? Together with Christ. Have you been called? Church, before we can begin to unpack the rest of Ephesians 1 through 16, you have to answer the question, have you been called? And if you haven't, then the rest of the book of Ephesians and the rest of this sermon doesn't matter. Because it just becomes moralistic therapeutic deism. You're seeking to please God and feel good about yourself. And here's the thing, being a good person and living right and trying to do the right thing and being raised in a Christian family or coming to church every Sunday, that doesn't save you. God's not pleased with you for doing those things. The only way God sees you as holy and as blameless and as a child is through the blood of Jesus. Are you called and are you covered by the blood of the Lamb? If you are called, ah, that's where our high calling comes from, right? So what does it, so, so then, if you are called, how do you walk? What is a worthy walk? Well, good news, Paul's kind enough to tell us in verse two, right? He says, first off, a worthy walk is a humble walk. Well, what is a humble walk? Take your Bibles, flip over two pages to Philippians chapter two. Paul answers it for us. He's a real nice guy. Philippians chapter 2, verse, th- verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant as yourself. So what is humility? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 3, it's to count others more significant as ourselves. But then he gives us a picture of it. 
Jump down to verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying you guys can think this way. You can have humility if you're in Christ. Who though Jesus, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you think about Jesus for a little bit, there was never a time when Jesus was not. Jesus was with God in the beginning. He has existed for all of time. And he existed for all of time in perfect harmony and perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. But what did Jesus do? Because of our sin, Jesus laid aside his glory, and he came, and he lived a life like us. He walked out where the wind blows 78 miles an hour, and you can't see the front of your pickup, right? I don't know if that's the case over in Israel. I don't know if the wind blows that hard. Maybe it does or doesn't. But, but the point is, is Jesus lived. He experienced death, sadness, sorrow, joy. He did all the things in life when he could have existed in perfect harmony. But in humility... He came like us. But his humility wasn't just laying aside his glory and becoming like us. Where was his humility really seen? On the cross. So what is humility? Humility means that you sacrifice who you are for the good of others. That's humility. And what happened when Jesus did it? Verse 9 of Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus humbled himself, Christ exalted him. Church, God has a tendency, when you humble yourself, he magnifies himself by using you. He doesn't exalt you, he exalts Jesus, but he uses you to do it. So the first step in a worthy walk is to walk with humility. And the second is gentleness. Well, what is gentleness? Well, Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, come to me all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, Jesus is gentleness on display. Are you tired are you weary? Have you been laboring? Go to the guy who can carry it all. Go to the one who is sovereign and sustains the universe, right? We see here in just a few verses, he is over all and through all and in all. If you're hurt and sad, go to the gentle shepherd because that's who Jesus is. I heard uh, a guy say once that Jesus is a gentleman. He never forces anything upon us. Rather, he kindly and patiently waits and helps and carries. So Jesus is personification of humility, and he's the personification of gentleness. But then, third, he's also the personification of patience. Right? So Paul tells his own story in 1 Timothy. He says, This say saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now think a minute about who Paul is. Paul was Saul. Right? Before he got saved, before the Damascus Road experience, Paul was Saul. And what did he do? He ran around and he persecuted Christians. He enslaved them. He stood by when, and held all the robes of the people who stoned Stephen back in the book of Acts. That, that was Paul. What did Paul deserve for that lifestyle? If someone is persecuting us as Christians, how do we feel about it? Like we're ready to go to bat. 
Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If God had not been patient with Paul, think about how much of the New Testament we wouldn't have. Two-thirds. But God was patient with Paul for our good as an example that we might know what God is calling us to. Praise God that he was patient with Paul. Praise God that he was patient with you. Because in your wickedness and in your rebellion, what do you deserve? But God's patient. And he's kind. And he's gentle. And he's humble. Because he loves you. So a worthy walk is one that's humble, gentle, patient. Then it's bearing with one another in love. Right? So this word bearing with one another, depending on which translation you're looking at, I believe in the NASB, uh, it, it, calls, it uses the, the phrase showing tolerance. Paul in uh, Colossians 3, I think he kind of unpacks what this is. He says, if one of us has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So if you're dealing with people, and we're going to see here in a little bit that what Paul takes this thesis statement and runs and applies it to first is the church. So the Christian life is not meant to live in isolation. We're going to get there in a second. But if you're dealing with people, there tends to be problems. Because I have a tendency to think I know better. And I really don't. Or you tend to think that you know better and I know better. And that just has a tendency to create a little bit of friction. But a worthy walk is one that shows tolerance. That bears with one another. Now, I can show tolerance with you just so we can get along and accomplish a job, right? But I know I'm going to move on. Paul qualifies bearing with one another, showing tolerance with one another with a prepositional phrase. I don't just show tolerance with you so that we can get along. I show tolerance with you in love because I love you and I want what's best for you. So I'm willing to be humble and I'm willing to be gentle and I'm willing to be patient and I'm willing to show tolerance. I'm willing to bear with you because I love you. That's a worthy walk. So Paul gives us those four things and finally he says, those who walk worthily are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is kind of an interesting statement and again, Paul has already unpacked this in the book of Ephesians. So if you look back at Ephesians chapter two, verse 14, Paul says this. He says, for he himself is our peace is that word peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What? <laughs> What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying, look, God has established peace with you, and he's established peace with you through Christ. God sent one body, the man Jesus, to suffer and die the death that you deserved. And when he did that, who did God make peace for you with? With God. You can now have peace with God because of the one body of Jesus. And he's given you, if you are in Christ, he's given you his spirit as a seal of your inheritance, which he talks about earlier in Ephesians 1. He's given you that to help maintain that unity between you and God and that peace between you and God. Now, God has established that peace with him, and because we have peace with God, you can have peace with me. You can have peace with each other. This works because what saved you saved me. 
And because we have peace with one another, through Christ, we're now unified. And that leads us to our second point, the grounds for unity. So the first is our high calling, which is a worthy walk. The second is our grounds for unity. Verse 4. That's chapter 2. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. What word is used over and over? One, right? It's not. It's kind of Captain Obvious, but what do you think that matters? Do you think God's making a point here? Here's the deal. When God saved you through his one body, he gave you his one spirit that unifies us in one hope. Well, what's that hope? Well, the book of Ephesians unpacks this earlier on. We looked at it at verse 9 and 10, but one commentator had to say this, and I thought it was really interesting. As a foretaste of this grand hope that Paul is talking about here. We have a grand hope. What is this hope? What is the taste of that hope? What did God give? He gave the very existence of the church. This place is supposed to be a representation, a foretaste of the hope that we have with God. It's a society of pardoned rebels, a multiracial community in which Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in the unity of one body. The church is God's means in which he manifests his richly diverse wisdom to the rest of the world. This one body, this one spirit, this one hope is represented right here, represented right here. That's mind-blowing to think that the foretaste of heaven is supposed to be experienced in between us. Do we experience that? Are you experiencing that with one another? That should totally, totally change your perspective on what the church is and how it's supposed to function. So we have this one body, one spirit, one hope, and then he goes on, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. What that phrase was probably used as, as some sort of like a baptismal, I don't know, statement when someone before or right after they were baptized uh, back in the early church. But what it does is it echoes of the Shema of back in Deuteronomy 6.4, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Paul would have been saying this one Lord, one God, one faith, one baptism, and what the Jews in the room would have been hearing is this Jesus is the same God that we've worshipped back in the, in the Old Testament. It's just him on earth. And he is what unites us, and he's what sustains us. And you know why he unites us and he sustains us? Verse 6. Because he is over all, he is through all, and he is in all. So God, by the nature of his character in the work of his son, has called us, a group of rebels, of sinners, to live together in one body. And the only way that he can do that is because he's in the midst of it. That's what sustains it. And then he says, church, walk worthily, of the calling with which you have been called, and you're unified because of the spirit and the body of Jesus. But I'm not just going to say, be unified. That's not what he does, right? He keeps going. So he gives us the grounds for unity, which is himself. But then also, at the same time of unity, he gives us the beauty of diversity. That's our point three. So in verses seven through 14, we're going to see that God has given, through Christ, gifts to the church. 
He's given these gifts. Now, back in 1 Corinthians, we studied this a few weeks ago. We, we studied what are the gifts given to believers. But what's interesting in this, in this verse is the gifts that Paul describes are way different than from what we see in 1 Corinthians. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, who was grace given to? Each one of us, right? Grace exists for those who are in Christ. Each one of us was given grace. And then it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, so God has measured out. Now, when you measure something, you, you know, I'm not a, a cook, I, but you pour different measurement amounts, right, to make things up, right? Right? Somebody help me here, please. Anybody with me? Right? So, so, so what Paul is saying here is like, look, God has given different measurements of grace to different people. And those gifts of grace that he's given you are not for you. They're for the rest of the church. But what are the gifts that have been measured out that he uses that he talks about in Ephesians 4. Jump with me down. We're gonna, for the sake of time, we're going to skip uh, 8, 9, and 10. We're going to jump to verse 11. And he gave. Here's the gifts. You ready? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So what are the gifts? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, I'm not going to unpack the po- apostles and prophets. We've done that in 1 Corinthians. You can go back and listen to podcasts. What's an evangelist? Well, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. What's an evangelist? It's someone that just tells people about Jesus, about God's sin, Christ's response. It's connecting with people, loving people, telling them the good news of the gospel. And then there's the shepherds and teachers. That word shepherds is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as the word elder or overseer or pastor. We here at Liberty use elder and pastor synonymously. So that idea of shepherd describes part of the role of what an elder pastor overseer is. He is a shepherd. He's someone to care for people. And then, Paul, what's interesting in that last little bit is he's shepherds and teachers. So that idea of teaching is tied to shepherding. So a shepherd needs to be able to teach. But on the flip side, I also think this is a little bit of a different category of people who teach the church the word of God, right? So shepherds and teachers, he's given them, and he's given them for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, I think this kind of brings us to a little bit of specific application for our church today, right now in this season. Our pastor, our lead pastor, Jeremy, is applying for a new job. He's got his job interview that's going on right now, right? And hopefully, this sounds weird, hopefully it goes really well and God moves in there. And I know you hearing that is like, wait, what? I love that dude and he's my, one of my very best friends, if not my best friend. So I'm excited because that's, like I talked about last week, that's God moving. But God in his wisdom and kindness created the church so that there's shepherds, multiple shepherds, multiple pastors. So for us, as we look into this next season and this next step, what should you expect from your shepherds, your elders, your pastors? Well, Will and I are the other pastors here. And what's our main role? Well, it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And how do we do it? We do it through teaching the word of God. So, so you can expect Will and I to teach the word of God. That doesn't mean that we're going to carry on the majority of preaching. 
We're not. Our, our goal in the short term is to find an interim pastor, someone who can be here to preach regularly. There will probably be some interim pulpit supply from people that have already been here and preached to us, people that if you've been here for multiple years, you probably know them. Will and I will preach some, but we are not going to carry the majority of this load. And, and there's a couple reasons why. Uh, part of that is, is, is we, we have day jobs, and it takes a lot of time to put together a sermon. So, so we have day jobs, and so that's one reason. But the other reason, uh, the other reason of this is, is the other roles of what a pastor and shepherd is supposed to do. He's supposed to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, how does a pastor do that? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we studied this last week in Sunday school, Paul says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we are going to equip you by teaching you the word of God. We've got Sunday school, we've got sermons, Will is teaching with Frank, he's teaching youth on Wednesday nights, so we're gonna keep doing those things. And then the other way we see that pastors serve the church, if we think back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter six, uh, the, the apostles, the church was growing, it was right after Pentecost, the church was growing, it was blowing up, there were so many people, and the apostles got caught up having to deal with the daily needs of the church. And in doing so, they neglected the ministry of the word and prayer. They weren't able to pray with the people or teach the people. So they elected deacons. And the deacons took care of the tangible needs while the apostles and the pastors took their time to focus on teaching the word of God and praying with people. So you can expect us to teach you the word of God and then you can expect us to be a lot more intentional about how we pray with you and praying for you. I remember when we were transitioning into eldership pastor plurality of pastors here at Liberty. I, I taught either a sermon or a Sunday school. I don't remember what it was. And there was four things that which pastors do. They preach, they pray, then the last things they do is they love and they stay. So you can expect us to preach, you can expect us to pray, you can expect us to love you, to move in closer, to spend more time with you, to buy lunch, to get to know you and your family better, and you can expect us to stay. We're not going anywhere. We're gonna be here. We live here. We farm here, we ranch here, this is what we do. And that's, that is what our role is going to be as we move forward. At the same time, we're going to be in the process of trying to find an interim pastor and then ultimately a new lead pastor for us. That, that's kind of the trajectory of where we're headed uh, in this time for right now. So our goal is to be much more intentional in loving and serving you so that you can, we can equip you for doing what? The work of ministry. You know, the beautiful thing about how God has designed the church with the plurality of leadership is, is when one pastor steps away, the ministry doesn't stop. Like nothing changes. Sure, the guy who normally preaches is not here as much, and that hurts because we know he loves us deeply. He loves us. He loves you. And we're sad because of that. But at the same time, we look at him leaving with a sense of expectancy of God doing something in the work to continue because it's not the pastors who are doing all the ministry. He's not carrying that load. You are. And praise God for his wisdom and kindness in that. So our goal is to equip you so that the work of ministry continues. And what is the goal of the work of ministry? Building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, this unity of the faith, what does that mean? Well, it means that we grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's done. Uh, I think it was John MacArthur who said, listen to this whole quote, God expects conformity within the church, the body of Christ. Now, if you hear that, 
If you hear conformity, you kind of go, hold on a minute, I don't know about that. But this conformity is not a legalistic conformity to external rules and regulations. Rather, it's a willing inner conformity to the holiness and love of Jesus. So what, what is our gaining unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the sonhood of God? It's an inner position of heart that's one of humility and gentleness that begins to look just like the guy who saved us. It's one in which we grow in our knowledge of who he is. And as we grow in our knowledge of him, Paul says that we are to mature into manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, in 13 and 14, Paul's doing something, right? So 13, we have the measure of manhood. And then in verse 14, we have, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Many of you guys know Sawyer, our three-year-old. Uh, what do you call Sawyer? Wreck it, Crashmore? That's it. Crashmore. Sawyer is, is Crashmore. He has a permanent goosebump on his head. I don't know if it will ever shrink. I love that kid. He brings much joy. But he has a tendency as a three-year-old to act like a three-year-old. And do you know how three-year-olds act when they get mad? They tend to throw a fit occasionally. And those fit throwings, what, what happens when a three-year-old throws a fit, right? There's laying on the floor, and kicking and screaming. There's, what are you laughing at? There's, there's you taught him it. There's running, there's running around, hiding in the closet, hiding back behind mom's clothes, knocking half the hangers off, right? Occasionally there's destruction, not always, but sometimes, right? So, so three-year-olds tend to act like three-year-olds. And do, do we get mad when three-year-olds act like three-year-olds? We can, get, we can be concerned, but the wrong response for me as his father is to chase after him yelling and screaming because you know what I'm doing? I'm mimicking him. I'm acting just like a three-year-old. So when I'm at my best and my three-year-old throws a fit, what do I do? I go into the closet, I separate the clothes, and I pull them out, and I say, Sawyer, I love you, and I understand that you're mad, but you can't act this way. You've got to change. Because if I don't curb my three-year-old's behavior now, what does that fit throwing look like when he's 16? Right? It's a problem. Church, it is okay if you are a child in your faith to be a child in your faith. But it's not okay for you to stay that way. Because here's what's going to happen. Life's going to throw you a right hook that hits you right in the teeth. And your pastor's going to leave your church, or your child's going to pass away, or he's going to rebel, or you're going to lose your job, or you're going to lose everything you have. And you can respond in one of two ways. You can respond like a child who runs away and throws a fit, or you can look to a kind and humble and a patient and a gentle father who shows tolerance with you. And when you do that, you begin to step back and you begin to have perspective, you begin to see, hey, it's okay. I can have a little bit of self-control and understanding that God is still sovereign over this, that Jesus is still over all and in all and through all. And because of that, I can have confidence and I can have peace. So the goal of a shepherd teacher is to equip you so that the work of ministry continues on so that you grow up into the image of Jesus. We have a high calling. We have grounds for unity. 
We have beautiful diversity. You have guys who are given certain gifts and women who are given certain gifts to make this church go. But all of this brings us to the last point, and that's the growth of unity. That's our fourth and final point. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so we have pastors, shepherd teachers who are equipping the saints. Well, what are the rest of the saints supposed to do? Verse 15, first they speak the truth in love. Now, you've probably heard it said that truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy. So I'm a farmer and we, uh, we've got several employees that work for us and four of them are South Africans that will, please God, be here very soon. Uh, we're waiting on them to get here. Uh, those four guys are leaving their families for nine months, and they're different ages, I think 22 to 56, and they're all going to live under the same house for nine months. How do you think things will go for nine months living under the same house away from your family who's in a different continent in a different time zone? There tends to be challenges, problems, and I'm thankful for those guys. I am so grateful for them, and I, I want them in life to succeed because they make our world work. We couldn't do what we do without those guys. But here's the deal. As I see problems arise, if I don't step in and try to do something about it to fix the problem, then really what I'm saying to them is I don't love them. What I'm really concerned about is, is I'm afraid of what they might think about me. I'm afraid of being uncomfortable. Well, who's that about? That's all about me. That's all about my pride. That's going back and, and doing what the original first sin was. It's me determining what is good. So if that's the case, I'm not really loving them. So if I don't step in and tell them the truth, that's brutality. On the flip side, I can step in and I can tell them the truth, but I can do it in such a way that it's hurtful. Right? So think about the story of Job in the Old Testament. Right? Job lost everything. And then Job went and crawled up on the heat pile and he covered himself in dust and ashes. And do you remember who came and talked to Job? It was his friends. One of them was a pastor. And you know what those friends had to say? Some of them offered good biblical truth. But the way in which they said it and the timing in which they gave it crushed that relationship. So truth without love is brutality, but on the flip side, love without truth is hypocrisy. If I say to my kid, hey, I love you, and there's a silage truck coming down the road at 60 miles an hour, and I don't step out there and get my kid out of the way, do I really love my kid? No, I'm a hypocrite. I'm not actually living it out. So church, what Paul and what God through Paul is calling us to do is to speak the truth, but to do it in love. It's important that we speak the truth. Now, what's the truth? We talked about this in Sunday school. Who is the truth? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, so the first truth that we speak is Jesus. But Jesus in the book of John says, your word is truth. Sanctify them in your truth. Church, what, what you have to give someone is not your two cents. Because really, that's all it's worth, is two cents. What you have to give people is the truth. It's eternal. It's trustworthy, 
It's good. It reflects the giver. This is what you give people. So when you speak the truth to people, you share this with them. And you do it in a way that's loving, not in a way that's brutal. So we speak the truth in love. And what's the purpose of doing that? So that we grow up in every way into him who is the head, who is Christ. Church, as we tell the truth to people, as we disciple people, and we give them the word of God, who do you begin to look like? Christ. You begin to look humble and gentle, patient, tolerating one another with love. You begin to look peaceful, and you work to maintain that peace. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. Christ has saved you, and he's placed you into his body. You are a hand, or an arm, or a leg. Jeremy used this illustration when we talked about the body a few weeks ago. You remember the Adams family, right? And the one super awkward character that has no purpose. You remember what it is? It's the hand, right? He can crawl around on the table. I think he can play the piano. The Adams family really creeped me out when I was little, so I didn't watch it, right? The hand, but the hand wasn't worth much. Right? Without the rest of the body, he couldn't do a lot of things. So a few weeks ago, I was building some fence around a pivot, and uh, I was on my first post, and I had the rebar in this hand and the hammer in this hand, and I nailed it in in about five, five swings. But then I got to my fifth post, and on about the third swing, I missed the post, and I hit my hand. What's the problem there? Was it my hand, or was it a wimpy bicep that's not in shape? Or was it the wind blowing 50 miles an hour and trying to hit a moving target? Or was it bad eyesight because I can't see very good? Here's the thing. When the bicep is not working like the bicep's supposed to, or the eyes aren't working like the eyes are supposed to, or the core is weak because it can't stand the wind and hold steady, the left hand gets hit. And was it the left hand's fault? No. Did the left hand go punch the right hand? No. And thank goodness it didn't punch the eyeball either. <laughs> Church, here's, here's the point of this illustration. God has saved you, and he's placed you into this body. And if you're the bicep, and you don't exercise and work properly, the left hand gets hit. If the eyes don't have their glasses, you'll never even see the post, right? In order for this church to function properly, each member has to function. You have to be a part. Otherwise, you're dead weight. And here's the flip side of that, right? So what happens, here's what happens when the body works properly. What happens? The body grows so that it builds itself up. So, so when we walk worthily of this calling, what happens? We grow, but what, how do we grow? We grow in love. We grow in love for one another, and we grow in love for Jesus. And here's the thing. If you are not functioning properly, if you are not using the gifts that God has given you, it's actually the opposite. It's anti-love. It's saying, church, I don't love you. I don't care about you enough to help you grow into the image of Jesus. And that's what causes disunity. Paul's warning to the church in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 is church be unified. And you be unified by walking worthy of the calling to which you have called. You, you take on the characteristics of our Savior. You look like him. And he's placed you into this body so that you can serve and strengthen. This is a diverse group of rebels. Right? We have people here from Mexico. 
We have people here from South Africa. We have people with German Mennonite backgrounds and, Mex- and Holderman Mennonite backgrounds. We got people from California, people from Arizona. We got people from all over. What a diverse group. And what's the one thing that unites us? It's Jesus. Church, if Christ has called you, he's called you to a high calling, to walk worthy of the manner in which you've been called. It's a high calling, but in his kindness, he's given gifts. He's given gifts to make this work. He's given us each other. And when we do work properly, we grow. You grow to look like Jesus. I can't look more like Jesus without you. And you can't look more like Jesus without me. And that was God being kind to both of us. So, church, as we close, I want to invite the music team up. And as they're coming, I want to I really just pose two questions. And as, as I ask these questions, I want you to think about them for a minute. The first question is the one that we started with at the very beginning. That is, are you called? The rest of the sermon doesn't matter if Jesus is not Lord of your life. If Jesus is not Lord of your life, then he is calling you today. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. If Jesus isn't Lord of your life, then I want to call you today to repent and believe. There's nothing magical about saying a prayer, but there is something miraculous. God brings you from death to life. He places you into his body so that you can work and function properly, so that you can begin to look like him. So are you called The second question is this. Church, are you walking worthy of your call? If Christ has called you, are you walking worthily? Are you using the gifts God has given you to grow the church in love for him and for one another? I'm going to give us a minute to reflect on this. There is some of us in this room who need to repent and believe. And then there's some people in this room who need to repent. Because gentleness and humility and patience, and long-suffering, and unity has not defined you. There's some of us who need to repent because God has given you a gift and you are not using it to serve this church. And God is calling you now to serve, to connect. Why does he do this? So you can look just like him. Church, I'm going to give us a minute. The music's going to, Mom, if you go ahead and start to play. I'll close this in prayer here in just a second.